0: Written on the pages of the Great Book of Nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft.
1: Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with Brother Axel Savari, and we have a very interesting subject today to discuss.
2: Tonight we're going to be talking about Theosophy, and specifically Theosophy's influence on masonry, and I should say co-masonry, because at least as far as I'm aware, there really hasn't been much of a theosophical influence on mainstream male craft masonry. I don't know if I agree with that, Brother Axel. I
1: think theosophy has had a huge impact, even on regular male craft Freemasonry. Uh, when we look at prolific writers such as Willemhurst, we look at Manly P. Hall. Yep. We even look at Albert Pike, which interestingly. Um, Blavatsky and Pike lived at about the same time and they died within a month of each other. Uh, I believe uh Blavatsky died April 2nd and he died April excuse me May 8th of 1891. It's, it's I that's think it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: So before we get too far down the rabbit hole of theosophy, let's go back to the beginning and and talk about who Helena Blavatsky was because she was a really fantastic like extraordinary character of history she did a lot for the world so helena petrovna blavatsky was a ukrainian aristocrat in the early 19th century i think she was born in the 1830s and she used her position in society her wealth to become an educated a superbly educated woman which well it wasn't unheard of completely certainly wasn't the average path for a woman in eastern europe at the beginning of the 19th century so she uses her wealth she goes on these um, immense adventures throughout the east she's Journeying through India and China and eventually ends up in Tibet. And this is where her story takes a turn for the extremely interesting.
1: She supposedly encounters a group of what will be called masters of the wisdom, who are evolved human beings, superhumans, who will guide her in her education, her spiritual education, and teach her essentially the truths of our existence. Um, This is based on some stanzas, some ancient documents um, from the distant past, and it recounts essentially the creation process of this universe, of this planet, of the race, and she returns to the Western world to form the Theosophical Society in 1875 based on uh, several books that she wrote, one being Isis Unveiled. Uh, Which I think is a two-part book, and then
2: ultimately her magnum opus, which is um, the Secret Doctrine. So I wanted to to delve into that a little bit because you briefly mentioned those stanzas. That's from they're they're called the stanzas of Zion, and they're um, they're actually a fragment of a much older book that was apparently preserved by these masters in Tibet. Um, that's from you know a time that nobody on planet Earth except for these small enclaves even remembers civilization existing at. But you're, there's a whole cosmogony that's represented and we only have this 16 line scrap of it that Blavatsky revealed to the Western world. The secret doctrine
1: is basically broken into two volumes. One is anthropogenesis and the other one's cosmogenesis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And these two outlay, First, you know, how the universe was created, and secondly, the development of man. And anybody that's picked up a copy of The Secret Doctrine will know that this is not a simple book. This is This is very deep. This is very well written. It's like reading an encyclopedia. It's very technical, and for a woman in the late 19th century to have written this is absolutely amazing.
2: Well, and I think there's a parallel to Pike, as you, as you mentioned before, because Morals and Dogma is kind of like a Masonic equivalent to the uh, esoteric Secret Doctrine and the Isis Unveiled. You know, they're both uh, encyclopedic in their scope, but also they're they're channeling this kind of otherworldly philosophy. It seems almost, it's the same thing when you read um, Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manley Hall. It seems like it's greater than the author, you know, and this is a, a real talent of Blavatsky's, that she always had this air of imparting information that was from a source greater than herself. You never got the impression that she was just making this stuff up, that it was like something that she had tapped into. There's an author, and I
1: don't remember his name, but he wrote a book... Um, basically pointing out that the masters that Blavatsky supposedly met in Tibet and in the Himalayas were people that she knew in the Western world, people that she respected and that she had created these sort of personas for them as masters of the wisdom hanging out in this you know, great white brotherhood lodge up in the Himalayas. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's just a fact for people that are, you know, if, if, if you do think it's false, there's, there's some writers that have written on the subject. But I think we should get back to this idea of the masters, because this is really the crux, the center of theosophy, which is there are these superhuman beings... And we
2: should and not confi- real, real quick, though, yeah. but when you say superhuman, you don't mean, like, Superman. These aren't comic book characters. You mean superhuman as in they've gone beyond the limitations of the average human being.
1: Well, I would actually argue that our concepts of, of like, a comic Superman, of superheroes, mm-hmm. a lot of this may come from Masters of the Wisdom. Mm-hmm. That, you know, she had this idea that humans could evolve into something that was greater. They would have um, the ability not to necessarily have to eat Uh, their passions had been completely subdued. They They could could be
2: in multiple places at once. Exactly.
1: Project themselves. Astral travel, etc., etc. That's what you see in comic books today. I mean, they make it sound a little more scientific and genetic, but it's essentially the same thing. And this would be a concept manipulated by the Nazis in order
2: to create their master race of the Aryans. Well, th- that's what they were talking about when they were um, putting forth their philosophy of the Ubermensch, right? The Superman. Hitler was super into Blavatsky. Like He got a lot of his ideas straight out of the secret doctrine. I mean, for example, probably the biggest uh, thing that he took from Theosophy, in Theosophy there's this idea of root races, that on the earth there are manifested... Races of human beings. And not like, not in the sense that we think of, of like, black people and white people and Hispanic people. These are like, Races that are all the people on the earth and it's symbolic of grades of evolution in in the human history Like so when one race quote-unquote ends There's usually like a a catastrophe on the earth and a new group of people emerges from somewhere that survived this catastrophe like um, Noah surviving the flood would be the start of a new root race, for example
1: well in in theosophy you know, the idea of Noah and the flood is essentially the idea with Atlantis. So the fourth root race was the Atlanteans. And when they came to an untimely demise, so came the Aryan race out of northern India, out of the, what we consider Nepal today, and they spread across the earth. So, well, so Hitler takes this idea, <laughs> yeah.
2: you know, of these Nepalese settlers post catastrophe, and turns them into this, you know, race of ubermensch with blonde hair and blue eyes that are coming to, you know, lead Germany to a state of racial purity. So, he got off the Theosophical track quite a bit. Well, he quite abuses it
1: and he misuses it, but you know,
2: Hitler ruins the swastika for us, he, which was introduced to the West by Blavatsky.
1: Exactly, and 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 he he ruins. Many different things that we cherish in the occult because he's made a bad name for it. So, But that's another episode, so let's keep going on the masters here. And you know, when we're talking about the masters, we have to be careful because there's two ideas of masters. Blavatsky used the term masters of the wisdom. So these people can still be killed. Like They, they still have mortal gods. bodies. They're not gods. But an idea over the decades after the death of Blavatsky, and there'd be many schisms in theosophy that we'll get to a little later there's this concept of the ascended master, which they're basically like gods on earth. Yeah, And Blavatsky would probably be rolling in her grave if she had thought that her ideas had been warped into this sort of like uh, entities that would be worshipped by man.
2: Well, because she sets forth a master of the wisdom as something to be attained. By to people. evolve into. Yeah, something to be attained given um, dedication and study and practice and service to humanity. These, these are people the the reason they're superhumans is because they do nothing but serve human humanity that's why they're super beings is because they have they have perfected themselves to such a point where everything that they do is in service to humanity there's no thought of self and they're they're organized in these you know enclaves up in the himalayas so that they can more efficiently serve humanity but they don't interfere with human affairs what they
1: do is try to help those that are seeking to help humanity, to empower them with tools and with a direction in order to help the rest of humanity. So it's very important to, to, to note that they, they're not sitting here controlling secret councils. They're not a secret Kabul up in, in the mountains of, of the Himalayas uh, controlling you know political
2: and religious decisions on earth. They're guiding individuals to serve humanity. Well, individuals and the species as a whole because something that is really fundamental to theosophy and especially the the philosophy of the masters that Blavatsky puts forward in throughout her theosophical writings is the idea of evolution, both physical and spiritual, because that idea of root races that's describing the physical collective evolution of humanity, but the theosophical path is a way of speeding up the individual evolution of the human being so when we talk about the masters guiding human events it's not that they like they're not guided by common morality they're guided by the philosophy of evolution and in evolution things that are unfit to meet the challenges before them go extinct so masters of the wisdom are not going to interfere in that process. If something can't survive a challenge that's put before it, well, then it wasn't worthy. It's not going to help humanity. So that when they say help humanity, it's not like make sure everybody's comfortable. It's make sure the species evolves to its highest potential. That's theosophy in a nutshell. It's, it's
1: evolution. Like if somebody would ask me, well, what is theosophy? I said it's, it is a method by which to evolve the human race collectively. And interestingly enough, the model of the Theosophical Society is that there is no religion higher than the truth. So it is a collective study of religion, philosophy, and science. And Blavatsky believed all three would be reunited before
2: the end. Well, and especially in the beginning, theosophy was a vehicle by which to introduce practices that either had been very long dormant in the Western world or had never made it to the West. Um, And this is something I was kind of talking about earlier when it comes to Blavatsky's influence on the Western world. The reason we have yoga, the reason we even have any like Eastern philosophy in the Western cultural consciousness is entirely because of Blavatsky. When she came over in 1875 to New York and started the Theosophical Society. That was the first time the, these ideas had been given a hearing in the West. And spe- and I think it's interesting too that she picked America because it, it's at this time. I think it's the second great spiritual revival somewhere in there. Like there's a it's, lot of it's
1: after that point, but there, we're still coming off this religious. Well, high. and there's a
2: the religious high, but there's also like there's a lot of spiritualism going on in America. Mediums are on every corner. You know, people for entertainment they're not going to the movies they're going to talk to their dead relatives you know like <laughs> that's that's a really important point to make i think like this kind of stuff was much more in the consciousness so then blavatsky comes along and says let me tell you what they're doing in the east and what they know and that's where we get this kind of integration with um the yogic tradition with american and western culture
1: I mean, we could presuppose that somebody else would have come along
2: and done this, and I'm sure it would have happened eventually, well, this introduction into the West and through, of the and, East. and through the British Empire, like, people were coming back, but that wasn't really being spread. That was, like, knowledge acquired by aristocrats for aristocrats.
1: Now, Blavatsky, I think, single-handedly, we can attribute to this introduction of the East to the West, and because of her, the world became a smaller place. We became more interconnected. And so whatever anybody says about her, she did this great, great, great thing for humanity.
2: So Blavatsky starts the Theosophical Society in New York. And in 1891, she dies. And there's a split in the Theosophical Society. Uh, William Q. Judge, who is one of her first um, kind of followers, Uh, He takes some theosophical lodges in America. I think he's based out of San Diego. And then the other character who's involved is Annie Besant. Annie Besant was, um, she was a English... Uh, semi-aristocrat. Uh, she was the ex-wife of a priest. She became very uh, involved in the women's suffrage movement in England. She organized a lot of strikes, a lot of labor movements. She was a Fabian socialist. She was very political in her early life. And then she ends up um, at a theosophical lecture and decides that this is the way forward and becomes this champion of theosophy in Western Europe, and eventually Adyar, India, which is where the Theosophical Headquarters are moved to. International Headquarters. The International Headquarters. So so it's at this time the Theosophical Society splits without Blavatsky there to kind of hold it together, and Basant is the one that kind of takes Theosophy in its new direction, because uh, William Judge doesn't really innovate, whereas um, Annie Basant and her co-worker, Charles Leadbeater, they take Theosophy in a radical new direction.
1: They start evolving Theosophy from Blavatsky. They start introducing new concepts or embellishing existing concepts like clairvoyancy and the idea of a world of religion coming together uh, to sort of climax this fifth root race of Aryans. And she also becomes a co-Mason. She joins the... Um, International Order of Co Freemasonry, Le Joy Human, and she very quickly becomes a 33rd degree Mason. And while she's traveling the world for theosophy, going to South Africa, New Zealand, and all these different countries throughout the world, she's spreading Co Masonry.
2: Well, because she and Leadbeater, and Leadbeater started, I think, as a liberal Catholic priest which is a, uh, an esoteric offshoot of the Catholic Church, uh, they kind of saw co-masonry as the practical, ritualistic aspect of theosophy, whereas theosophy was the more academic, philosophical side. But they were they were both kind of, they saw them as engaged in the same work, but just occupying different spheres of activity. So it's at this time that, Bassant and Leadbeater are traveling the world spreading the good word of theosophy and they're opening up comasonic lodges across the world at the same time. They see
1: the they see Masonry as a link to the ancient mysteries, therefore a link to the ancient world and to this you know, to this entire structure that existed in the fourth root race. So it's an access to basically Atlantean secrets, uh, Atlantean ideas philosophies and and takes us
2: closer to the original source of humanity so their philosophical influence on co-masonry it starts to take um, masonry away from the idea that it's set up as a charity and that it's to help people materially in the external world and it becomes imbued with this more esoteric meaning um, as a link to the ancient mysteries as a um, as a place of education as opposed to a social club that does charitable works.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of people that accuse co-masonry that the ritual that's used, that was used by Leadbeater um, in a lot of the English-speaking world um, is a theosophical ritual, and that's simply not true. Um, it's basically a copy of the emulation ritual used by the Grand Lodge of England with some preliminary ceremonies that were taken from uh, continental Europe in terms of like a sensing ceremony and a specific lighting of the candle ceremony. But this is not outside of masonry. This is certainly not an innovation of theosophy. It was sort of a restoration of different elements. And what was different from traditional male craft masonry is the emphasis as you said it's 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 we're doing this for spiritual reasons we're doing this for evolutionary reasons we're not doing this as a club this is something to be taken very seriously and the ceremonies themselves have a certain magical power to them i'm not talking about like hogwarts magic here brother axel i'm talking about uh, a magic that is that's transformational it's alchemical in nature
2: well because there is this uh concept throughout theosophy that work that is done on the inner plane is affecting the outer world. So, I mean, and it, it sounds very kind of new agey, but you can break it down very simply if you change people and how do you change people other than changing them on the inside, change, altering their psychology, inspiring them, having them change themselves. Essentially, if you change people, well, then the world changes with them. If you elevate humanity, well, then the world is going to bear the mark of those changes. So it's really not as um, mystical as it may seem. Like it's actually very pragmatic and very practical in my idea, this idea of doing the inner work so that the outer work can be done.
1: You know, neither of us are theosophists. Um, I love theosophical teachings, and they're certainly a part of my personal philosophy, but I'm not a member of the organization, so I'm not here to defend or to attack the organization. Nevertheless, I think theosophy, in a way, may be the reason why Freemasonry will have been saved in the future, because it has planted a seed of... The esoteric in co-masonry, and that seed will only grow further and further as the generations pass. So, theosophy to me is the reason I'm a mason. Have I joined a traditional male craft lodge and encountered pancake breakfasts and you know paying dues and arguing whether we should pay bills or not and replace the toilet seat? I don't think I would have stayed. But being introduced to co-masonry, where the emphasis was philosophy, religion, and science and trying to make these three compatible discussing real topics of importance to myself and humanity is what inspired me to continue this journey and to dedicate my life to it
2: well i think it absolutely did breathe some life into masonry in general you know i think co-masonry had a kind of um magnetic effect on masonry after this spirit was imbued into it because the surrounding masonry i mean it was still recovering from the morgan affair you know when we when masonry had to uh kind of draw back and and you know say hey look you know we're not doing anything really serious or scary here like it it kind of it surrendered some territory there and i think with the theosophical influence on co-masonry but also on the general esoteric world, it breathed back in this spirit of, no, th- this is a ongoing tradition that has been carried on for millennia in many different forms. In, in this age, it might be co-masonry, but it wasn't always masonry, and it won't always be masonry, but there is life to it now, so carry the life forward.
1: Well, I, I really like what you said because it makes me think too that in 1875... Blavatsky created an organization that both genders could be a part of. In fact, women could be leaders in this organization. Um, it didn't discriminate against race or religion or creed. So the basis of real, true Freemasonry, that which we practiced in co-Masonry, I think a lot of it came out of theosophy. It, it laid the groundwork towards an organization that people could equally access. There wasn't this misogyny, there wasn't this racism. I'm sure there were elements of that because people are people, but mm-hmm. as as an establishment, as an organization, it began with a proclamation of equality.
2: It was very very progressive for its time. You know, you're right in that and it, I th- I find it interesting again that It was an esoteric organization, an occult organization that began this trend that would later be manifested in our political institutions, for example. I think it's another example of what I was just saying about, like, if you change the minds of human beings first, then institutions and society will adapt around them. And I think that's what uh, was always emphasized in theosophy, is that the real evolution is individual. And that if we can seize control of our individual evolution, then we can accelerate the collective evolution. There's another
1: interesting concept called the Bodhisattva vow, which is a concept that theosophists practice, which is, because they believe in reincarnation, I think that's something we should mention real quick. That typically a theosophist believes that we're we're coming would, back over and over again to refine s- ourselves. I would even say
2: that's kind of the foundation of theosophy. Uh, yeah, I, I would it's agree one with of that. the biggest concepts that they introduced to the West. Actually, is the idea of reincarnation, and that
1: essentially all mankind will make it. You know, it's just going to take longer if we can't get our act together. So this vow basically says for those that have become masters, for those that have pledge themselves to humanity, take a vow that they will not move ahead towards the next state of evolution until everyone else has. So it's like I'm staying behind until everybody makes it up the ladder.
2: Well and I don't know about you brother Matthias, but that's one of those things that's just so profound when you hear it you're kind of stuck with that position. like how can you hear of that and then be and then you know want to go on to Nirvana by yourself? It's at that point, like, you just have to turn around and say, well, I guess I'm not leaving until the job is done.
1: For me, it it touches my romantic heart 100%. You know, I'm like, I love it. Those are the things that, that we need are these vows that we pledge ourselves to a higher cause. And I think when you look at the obligations of Freemasonry, when we look at what we're really doing to build the universal brotherhood of man, it's essentially the same thing. We are working towards the salvation of humanity. And every Mason has been enlisted in this great cause, whether you know it or whether you don't know it.
2: Well, this is is something I wanted to return to because, you know, we talk about how evolution is the central pillar of theosophy. I mean, I would argue that evolution is the central pillar of Freemasonry. It's just, it's just different language. It's, and I think that's what Leadbeater and Basant identified. It's like, yeah, like the, the clothing is different. The symbols might be different. It's the same thing, age after age after age. Like Human beings are worshiping nature and trying to work in accord with nature. Whether that takes the form of Indian religion, Mithraic mysteries, you know, Chaldean religion, it doesn't matter. But some vehicle has to always be in existence to move that idea forward. So I think that they recognized in co-masonry a way of perpetuating that into the future. And in fact, that's what they did. They spread
1: co-masonry throughout the world, and the seeds of it still remain today. So we have Theosophy to thank for the expansion of co-masonry. And frankly, you and I would not be here doing this podcast if it wasn't for theosophy.
2: No, if, if Blavatsky had not opened up the Theosophical Society in New York, neither of us would be Masons. And honestly, I don't know how much of a future there would be for Masonry if she hadn't done that. Because, like you said earlier, it was that breath of life that reinvigorated the craft, reinvigorated the minds of the members to say, oh, you know, my organization is sitting on this wealth of symbolism. And of course, this is not to say that there weren't writers on the symbolism of Masonry before Blavatsky, but she put these ideas forward and they became a part of the cultural consciousness, not just the consciousness of Masonry, that general people had a a reference point by which to engage in these conversations and, and it gave esoteric Masonry a home in the world.
1: The Western esoteric tradition was reinvigorated by theosophy. It's been there. It was there without the East. We had our own esoteric traditions, but they were obscure, and it was introducing the East that I think gave some energy to the
2: Western mysteries. You know, Brother Matisse, you make me think, too, there's there's a precedent for this in history. The last time Western mysticism flourished was again after a contact with the East. I'm thinking of the Crusades. You know, after the Crusades, you've got all these uh, noblemen returning with all this knowledge that they had learned while they were in the East, and they come back, and what do you have? A Renaissance. I think Theosophy began a Renaissance that we are only just now beginning to experience.
1: Well, I like what you said because, yeah, Templarism, you know, literally came out of the Crusades, which is a very important part of the Western mystery traditions. So I think, yeah, absolutely you're right. Like it's it's we we need both hemispheres touching from time to time to breathe life into one another. And i
2: and thinking now of like a of a double helix spiral. It's like at certain points throughout history that the West and the East have to come together and invigorate one another, go their separate ways for all, but eventually come back. And it's this kind of rhythm that keeps the mystery traditions uh, moving forward in both areas of the world. Well, if you look at the stories of Jesus, or you look at the stories of of
1: Plato, of, you know all of these these ancient men, it's, there's, always, there's always this idea that they went to Egypt or they went to a special place to learn something. They went to the Middle East, you know Euclid did this. And I think this idea still is very much alive, that as as somebody that practices esotericism, you constantly are traveling to distant lands in order to find the truth. You have to go far away, and then you always have to bring it back.
2: Well, there's no static point in evolution, right? It's a continuous journey throughout space and time, one that is always going to be enacting change on whatever life form is experiencing it. And I think this is something that's set up in the framework of masonry also. I mean, traveling men. You know, we travel from west to east, from darkness to light. Like that kind of idea of perpetual motion is set up in masonry already. So I think it was sympathetic to these ideas that were brought over um, by theosophy. Another really important
1: element in theosophy is its view on the material universe. It's not a materialist religion. It's not a materialist philosophy or science. It believes that there's an immaterial part of the universe, a spiritual part, a hidden column um, that all our ideas come from, that the energy of the universe comes from. And so theosophists are directed through the secret doctrine to give up this notion that we live in a material or a solely material universe. And in this, many of them became vegetarians. Many of them formed movements which were against the cruelty of animals. Um, It's not that they were poor and they gave up wealth and, and, and living well, but their focus was on the spiritual work. And so matter is there to assist the spirit in finding its divinity.
2: Well, and I think something that was lost in every successive generation of theosophy was actually an emphasis on physical discipline. Because when Blavatsky comes back from Tibet... That's what she talks about, is that these, you know, these masters of the wisdom out in Tibet, these are people that have mastered the physical condition. It's not that they have you know, given up wealth or given up food. It's that they've moved beyond those things because they control them. Not because they're inferior or subordinate, but because they are a challenge to be overcome. There's something to be controlled, and they're a force for building up the spiritual side of the work.
1: Well, and this concept is found in our Masonic lodges. You know, we don't um, bring our cell phones in the lodge. We don't talk to the person next to us. We are conducting ritual. And as such, we sit in lodge like an Egyptian would sit in a hieroglyph. You know, feet together, hands on lap, back erect. It's physical discipline. You can't have magic. You can't have a spiritual experience if you're half asleep. You can't do it if you're busy thinking about other things so in co-masonry we focus on that physical discipline on conducting the ritual and ourselves becoming a channel to something higher because there's something immaterial that we're trying to gain access to so these theosophical concepts certainly not true concepts these concepts are far older than theosophy but again they were introduced or reintroduced into masonry and they found they found a place in our lodges which I think is essential to conducting the ritual work. You know, I've I've heard from male craft friends that sometimes they go to lodge, and there's just people chatting, there's people laughing, there's people on their phones. It's uh, how are you conducting ritual magic in an environment like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, when we say to subdue your passions, that doesn't mean ignore your passions. That means control them. And as speaking as a human being with passions, that's a constant effort. And the best way that I have found to do it, and I think that theosophy and masonry identifies this, is to control the physical body. That is the, if you can master that part, then everything else will start to fall in line. I'm not saying that there are not challenges further up the ladder as you exert control over yourself. But I think that um, we shouldn't shy away from the fact that that's what we're trying to do. We're trying, not necessarily in my opinion, to open ourselves We're actually trying to control ourselves. We are already open. We are already bundles of frenetic, chaotic energy. And what we're trying to do in masonry, and I think through theosophy too, is to shape and contain that energy so that it can be directed towards something purposeful, like what we got into with um, the first chapter of Morals and Dogma. It's about focusing the human force that exists in all of us. That's why right. when you read Pike
1: or you read Blavatsky, it's very similar, in my opinion. It's not the exact same text; there's different references, but it, it, it's pointing at the same direction. It's again, it's
2: evolution. So, Brother Matthias, as we near the end of this episode, I want to take us out on a quote um, from Blavatsky's collected writings, and I think it speaks to the essence of the theosophical evolution that we've been talking about this evening. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. There is a road, steep and thorny, beset with perils of every kind, but yet a road, and it leads to the very heart of the universe. I can tell you how to find those who will show you the secret gateway that opens inward only and closes fast behind the neophyte forevermore. There is no danger that dauntless courage cannot conquer. There is no trial that spotless purity cannot pass through. There is no difficulty that strong intellect cannot surmount. For those who win onwards, there is a reward past all telling, the power to bless and save humanity. For those who fail, there are other lives in which success may come.
0: Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Freemasonry. Universal Freemasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit Universal Freemasonry dot org